Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. This is God's holy word to Nehemiah. This is going to be a new uh, series that we're going to study. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hasaliah. Now it, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men of Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which, have, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will, and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. There they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by the great power and, and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your holy name, your name, and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. Beloved Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this, your holy word, as it is preached. Help us to receive and understand uh, this passage of scripture, and that we would have a godly sorrow, a sorrow over the sin of your people, a sorrow especially over our, our sin, a sorrow for the sin of the land. But Lord, we pray that that sorrow would not lead to death, but it would lead unto the fruit of righteousness and eternal life. Lord, bless this, your word, as it is preached. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. 
Amen. There is a difference between being sad and experiencing sorrow. I'll never forget some of the patients that I, I've dealt with. Um, there are some people that when they're extremely sad, they're up all night and they can't go to sleep because they're worrying and they're, they're both sad and worried so they can't sleep. And there are others who are going through a tremendously hard time. Maybe it was one lady, had, she had a stroke and cancer and almost near paralysis, but she didn't even want to wake up because life was so terrible and hard that when she was awake, she was in just utter grief. But she would rather just be asleep all the time because when she was asleep, she didn't experience that grief. Well, this sort of grief, this sort of sorrow is kind of comparable to what uh, Nehemiah went through. It wasn't just sadness. This was deep sorrow. In verse 4, Nehemiah is describing this deep sorrow here. and He says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. It wasn't something that was just passing. It was something that lasted for days. It doesn't say how many days. The Hebrew word here for mourn can be translated as grieved. He was grieving. Kind of like when you lose a loved one. Maybe you've been married, someone who's been married for many years and you, you lose the love of your life and you're grieving. That's what he was experiencing. That's sort of grief over what uh, we will read about this news that was given unto him uh, in this, uh, this um, book of Nehemiah. Before we move on there, I want us to look at a little bit of context. Uh, it's interesting that the context of the identity of, the, of this man, Nehemiah, comes at the very end of chapter 1. It says there, I was the cupbearer to the king. So uh, chapter 2, if you look at chapter 2, it mentions the name of the king in, in verse 1, King Artaxerxes. This was a, the a ruler of the Persian Empire, which was at its, um, almost at its height. It was, there was the rise of the, uh, the Greek Empire, at, at the beginning of the rise of the Greek Empire at the time. And then eventually the Greek Empire took over the Persian Empire. But at this time, the Persian territories was massive, extremely massive. It was almost at the height of their rule. Um, Ezra, um, according to some sources, was already in Jerusalem at this time. But uh, he was there taking care of some of the spiritual welfare of the people, teaching them the word of God. But they were not safe uh, because Nehemiah was concerned about the safety of the people there because of the news that was given unto him. Now, Nehemiah, as the king bear, as the cup bearer for the king, uh, he was a man uh, who was a highly highly trusted official. He wasn't just a, a lackey or a, a bellboy or a, what do you call a waiter or a butler. He was someone who was trusted with the very life of the king. Because at this time in history, there were a lot of assassinations, dagger, sword, poison, you name it. There was all sorts of attempts at the lives of these kings because others wanted their power. And you have to trust the person who was going to give you, to, you what your drink was going to be because he could be the one um, that could pass on that poison unto you. So you have to really trust this man with your life. And we'll, we'll look at that in chapter 2 later on, how there, there seems to be a, a cordial relationship between uh, Nehemiah and the king. Now, I always wondered, 
did the cupbearer have to taste what the what the king was drinking before passing it on? We don't know for sure. I don't know if the king would want to drink after him, but man, I don't know. Maybe you could stick a little something, a little spoon in there, and take a taste, and then see if he drops dead before you drink it. I don't. We don't know how how that went on, but at, at any rate, he really trusted this this man Nehemiah. Even though he was given this place of prominence, a place of trust, a place of honor, a place of respect. He was still grieving because he and his people were not where they should be. He was part of the people of God, the people of Israel. And the fact that he was even having to serve as an official for a pagan king was because of the sin of the people. And he'll talk a little bit more about that. They were God's chosen people who were brought into captivity in the first place because of their sin. As we look at today's uh, text, which is all of chapter 1, I want us to look at it under this heading. God wants you to imitate the righteous or the godly sorrow of Nehemiah. We are to imitate the godly sorrow of Nehemiah. And we'll see this in two main points. Uh, Sorrow over over the distress of God's kingdom is the first one. Sorrow over the distress of God's kingdom. And secondly, sorrow over sin and how to confess it. Let's look at this first main point, sorrow over the distress of God's kingdom. So men came from Jerusalem and gave Nehemiah a report that caused him great grief of heart. Look at verse 3. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, I know this is not necessary nowadays, but if you were in the ancient world and you lived in a city without a protective wall, oftentimes it could be great trouble for you. Uh, Vandals or raiders could come in in the middle of the night and set part of the city on fire. They could kill. They could steal. You needed a wall for defense. And oftentimes when they had a wall for defense, they had a guard set upon the wall who would keep them safe at night and there was always a watchman on the wall but they didn't have that because this wall was broken down and uh, it was in shambles basically so Nehemiah had great concern for the safety and welfare of God's people here in Jerusalem now um, I mentioned this uh, verse here in your outline 2nd Chronicles seven sixteen. When Solomon, dedicated, <coughs> when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, God said this, speaking of the temple and speaking of Jerusalem, I have chosen and consecrated uh, this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. That was the religious significance of the temple, that it was God's eyes were to be there perpetually, And that religious significance of the temple was tied closely with Jerusalem. This temple was vital because this was the place where the sacrifices were given uh, before the Lord. And this was the place where they had the Day of Atonement, where God promised to forgive the sins of the people on that special holy day. Um, We look at, uh, we don't have to turn there, but in Nehemiah 11.1, it's not just the temple that's considered holy. In Nehemiah 11.1, he says that Jerusalem is considered the holy city. He calls Jerusalem the holy city. 
So when Nehemiah got this report, God's holy city was broken down. Its walls and its defenses were in a wreck. And that's why in verse 4 he says, it says, He sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, what does this mean for us? Because of the work of Christ, because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial system in himself, he is the holy, flawless Lamb of God, and God in his providence has even taken the temple out of the way to show that we don't need a temple with animal sacrifices. We have the one holy Lamb of God who is offered once and for all for sin. Therefore, we need no temple. So what is this? What does this all have to do with us? Well, um, another proof text to to show us that the temple was not really significant is found there in John 4. It's listed there in your outline. John 4, Jesus said, um, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That text there predicts the fact that a building is not what's essential. It's the person that's essential. The sacrifice of Christ, it's our forgiveness of sins is tied to the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not to our participation in offering animal sacrifices of some sort in a temple in Jerusalem. So again, in this case, what is the relevance of the passage for us today? Nehemiah had great sorrow over the distress of God's kingdom. And I think what we are to carry from today's text is that in a like fashion, Christians filled with the Holy Spirit who know the word of God, we should have a godly sorrow over the distress of God's kingdom in our day as well. Any distress, any shortcomings, any discomfort of any sort. When there is a compromise of doctrine, it should cause us grief. When there are broken families in the church, it should cause us grief. Um, When there are lost in the community who do not know the Lord, and they don't even have a church to go to, it should cause us grief. Sometimes it causes me... It had, for a very long time, caused me grief that in many parts of South Louisiana, there was not many places that people can go to church other than the Catholic Church. And especially many parts of South Louisiana, very little to no Reformed Presbyterian church. Um, And a lot of that has to do with um, what we would call the um, federal vision controversy, which did extreme damage to Presbyterianism in our state of Louisiana. So stuff like that, controversies that cause churches to close, a lack of a reformed witness should cause us some grief. Other things that should cause us grief would be sin in the church when it's not repented of, and people being hardened in sin and not turning unto the Lord, uh, if, especially when they're called by the name of Christ. All these things, all these problems, all these shortcomings, all these cares, distresses, and woes for the church should remind us of a city with some walls broken down. Now, 
I do thank God for the stability of this little church and that God has allowed this church to have a, a faithful uh, group of uh, people in the church. And, we, and I, I, I believe that we have a faithful teaching and because we're a confessional church and we're tied to a good, sound, very biblical confession and catechism. Well, but st- still, there's the things that concern me. One of the concerns I have and, is that um, the, the next generation, we need more young people in the church because when the older folks um, pass on and go to be with the Lord, we want this church to continue for generations, don't we? So again, there is a godly sorrow or a distress, you could say, over the things that need to be fixed within the church. Now, this grief that Nehemiah had wasn't uh, this grief uh, that we should have as likewise for the bride of Christ should spurn us on to action rather than apathy. What is apathy? Apathy is like, oh, it's terrible. It's bad. But I think I'm just going to lay down on the couch and watch TV and get my mind off of it. That's an example of apathy. Or it's horrible. It's bad. And I know it's a lacking thing and we need to see something built up, don't we? But I think I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch TV. Or maybe I'll read something and get my mind off of it. Nehemiah didn't have that. He had a grief over what was going on, but it was a grief that led him to action. And we're going to look at that action next chapter. He was going to even approach the king, Artaxerxes I, uh, for favor. Um, Notice first how Nehemiah's sorrow moved him to fast and to diligently pray. In verse 4, it says he, he was before the God of heaven. And in, in verse 6, he said he was, he was praying day and night. He was praying diligently. He didn't just pray intermittently, he prayed diligently. But notice how he began his prayer. He began this prayer praising the person of God and his covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. That's a beautiful thing. When, when we pray, we acknowledge God for who he is. We praise him for his loving kindness. We praise him for his attributes. We praise him for his faithfulness because he's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And that was a heartfelt confession of sin that he then goes on to give. Let's look next at his sorrow over sin and how it can teach us to confess it as well. Look at Nehemiah's sorrow over sin. So his prayer then moves on from adoration and and praising God for his, his character, his covenant faithfulness. He moves on to then confessing on behalf of the sons of Israel along with himself and his whole family. Look at verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to, the, to, the, um, to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Now, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. 
Maybe you think it's the, the priest's job to pray on behalf of the people, to intercede on behalf of the people. And it is. Or it was. But um, this uh, intercession that Nehemiah gave, it was that he went before the throne of God and this was a long time before what some would say the doctrine of the, of the, the priesthood of believers comes into the, to the Bible. And I honestly was mistaken. I thought that the priesthood of believers was something that really began in the New Testament. But I was wrong. Because here you have a man, he's not a priest, but he's, he's interceding before the throne of God, like a priest would. Um, this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is something that begins in the Old Testament. Let's turn to a couple of passages. Keep your place in um, Nehemiah, but turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. This is a passage that speaks to God, of God's grace in caring for his people. Exodus 19, uh, 4, and, uh, through, 4 through 6. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, keep in mind that this passage did not mean that anyone had the right to the priestly duties, because even after God spoke this beautiful passage concerning the priesthood of believers, Korah and some of his associates wanted to go in and say, Moses, why do you and Aaron have the right to do this? Why don't we come in and do some of the priestly rituals as well? Because we want that honor to do it ourselves. And then God opened up the ground and swallowed them, with, and they, they fell into the ground and were consumed. So that's a proof text against the fact that anybody can take the priestly duties. But... This is a glorious picture of that doctrine, this wonderful doctrine. Um, another passage in your outline there is uh, Isaiah 61, 6, which says, You will be called the priests of the Lord, speaking to the people of God. Isaiah 61, 6. And then later on in Revelation, in the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, John uses this Old Testament language uh, when he says that this book, this revela- book of Revelation, came from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So here we have Nehemiah. Acting as an intercessor. That's what, a, that's what a priest does. We can go and intercede on behalf of others. Nehemiah, like Nehemiah, each of you can pray on behalf of your family. Job did that. Remember, Job would, would pray oh, to God and ask for forgiveness for the sins of his, his children. Um, that, and that was, he was an example of a holy, godly man. 
So you don't need to be behind a pulpit. You don't need to be an ordained elder. You don't even need to be a deacon. Any Christian can go before the throne of grace and intercede on behalf of others. And that's here what Nehemiah is doing. He's interceding both for his family and the sons of Israel and for himself, confessing all of their sins unto God. Now, next we want to notice that this faithful confession must begin with acknowledgement that God's law has been broken. Verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Perhaps this gives you a little glimpse of why we like to read the law of God every morning worship. We read the law of God because it's by the law of God we have a knowledge of sin. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want or lack of conformity or transgression unto the law of God. Without a knowledge of the law, you're not going to have much of a knowledge of, of sin. And maybe that's why a lot of people in our community don't want to listen um, to the gospel because they don't think they're sinners because no one teaches the law nowadays. That's why many gawk at the notion of needing to be forgiven because they think they're already a good person. The, commandment, the commandments of the Lord has not taught them that they are sinners because they have not listened to the commandments. That's why when you witness your Christian faith, and someone says, I'm a good person, you have to talk to them about the law of God. As with Nehemiah, we need to have godly sorrow over our sin. Our personal sin, the sin of our community, the sin of our, our families um, as well. And it, it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And I think that God heard the confession of sin of, of Nehemiah because he had a godly sorrow. And when we have a godly sorrow for sin, God hears that and God is pleased with that. It leads to salvation. It produces repentance. Nehemiah recounted their captivity next. He recounted their captivity and how it was due to God disciplining his people, his chosen people, because of sin. Um, however, he does go on to say that God promised to restore them back. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I think there he's speaking in verse 10 of the Exodus event. But notice the key to, the key to God's salvation being offered to someone is repentance. It says the sinner is required to return unto God or turn unto God for the first time if they've never done so. 
That involves turning away from sin and turning to God. Now, if you're in church and you pray to God and you confess a sin, but you're, you're thinking, well, once I get home, I'm going to do it again anyway. I don't think that's really true f- repentance, is it? But a repentance here is mentioned as a turning unto God and not turning back to go back into it, which is detestable in God's sight. Now, giving you a little preview for next week. Um, actually, it's not me giving you the preview. In, in Nehemiah, uh, the, the preview comes at the very end of the chapter. Um, he's saying that he's going to make a petition of some sort. He says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Who? Before the king, because he was the cupbearer. And this is a prelude to him going before the king and asking a special petition before the king on behalf of the people, before his people. And again, that's the, the cliffhanger that the scripture leaves us for next time. As we look at today's text, remember, Nehemiah wasn't just sad. He was utterly sorrowful. He was grieving. He sat down and wept and mourned for days. But God calls you to imitate the godly sorrow of this man. How? Have sorrow over the distress of God's kingdom, like Nehemiah. Rather than just being moping around about it, do like Nehemiah and seek to find some way that you could be useful for the sake of the kingdom to help in the rebuilding of the walls of the kingdom. They're broken down in some aspects, and maybe there are things that we could do to plug up the holes. Future sermons will address how each and every person, not just ministers, not just deacons, not elders, Every person in the church has a place and a role in rebuilding the walls of the kingdom. And we'll look at that in some future sermons. But also, imitate Nehemiah's godly sorrow for sin. He grieved over sin. And there's an appropriate way that we are to grieve over sin. It's not just, oh, Jesus forgave me, it's all right. No, sometimes it's appropriate to grieve over sin. Nehemiah's confession was rooted and an understanding of the law of God. The law of God is essential for us to understand what sin is. But like Nehemiah, strive to have a godly sorrow, a sorrow that leads by the will of God to repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Don't just grieve over your personal sin. Why don't you confess before God and plead before the throne of God on behalf of the sins of your family and the sins of the nation, especially those who are called by the name of Christ. Plead before God. Ask Him for mercy to forgive the sins of His people that He would cleanse our land. And you don't need to be an ordained elder or a deacon to do that or a minister. As we grieve over our sins as a nation and grieve over our individual sins, remember that godly sorrow leads unto salvation and that only salvation can be found 
through Jesus Christ, our Holy Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we ask that you would bless us with a godly sorrow like that of Nehemiah. Lord, that we would grieve over the sins of the sh- and the shortcomings and of the, the, the things that are lacking for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we grieve over our personal sin as well and the sin of our nation and the sin of your people. Oh, Lord, we pray that you grant forgiveness. Lord, that you would turn your people away from sin and selfishness. Lord, and you would bring them by the light of your gospel into a true faith and repentance. Forgive us of our sins and wash us clean. For we ask all these things by the name of Jesus Christ and through the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Let's uh, turn in our um, closing hymn, our hymn of dedication, 259, uh, O Lord, how shall I meet you? 259, O Lord, how shall I meet you?